In my class that I teach here at, at APU, I always ask a question, which is at the very beginning of the class, I ask how many of you would just take a C right now and just not take the class or write any of the papers? How many people would just take a C and walk out? And <laughs> I feel like those of you who just raised your hands, you, <laughs> you're like those people in my class who would very much uh, like to just kind of get by. And I'm going to ask you to do something much more difficult than that as we hit this part of Ephesians. I think that a number of weeks ago, uh, I would say in week two, Philip called us out and said, you know, a lot of times when we encounter difficult things in the Bible, we just take the sea and walk out. We just figure, yeah, I'm sure it'll all just come out in the wash. What do I really care? And we are now in the second week of trying to address a subject about submission within the church, which is always a difficult subject to talk about. Every commentary I looked at always starts off with the same thing. This is one of the most difficult subjects to talk about in Scripture. So we have a little bit of a choice to make. I, actually, I've made it for you. But <laughs> the choice I would have asked you to make is you guys just want to take the C and just move on to the full armor of God and just kind of wrap up the book, or do we actually want to understand as best we can what it is that the writer of Ephesians is trying to communicate. And as I said, I've already made the decision for you. Um, so with a little bit of trepidation, let's move forward and see where we've been. Backing up to verse 15 of chapter 5, we started last week with the verses that say, be careful then how you live. Paul has been addressing sexual impropriety in the church and staying away for it. He said, be careful how you live as a reminder these are just some of the things that he has urged us to live into the calling. That's what he's saying. And as you see on the screen, all the things that I have up there we discussed last week were just examples of how it is we're supposed to live when he says, be careful then how you live. He's addressed each of these subjects that you see. And he continues forward. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says the words that we are going to be struggling with last week, this week, and who knows how long. Submit to one another out of reverence, literally out of fear for Christ. The first point I want to make in showing you this is that even though we covered each of these verses in a little bit more detail last week, so I feel like we've covered their meaning, the first thing you should notice about this is that nothing in verses 15 to 21 appear to apply only to one group or another. He is speaking to the entire group that is receiving this letter. In other words, he's speaking to the whole church. The whole body of believers are to act wise. Everyone is to make the most of every opportunity. Everyone is not to get drunk on wine, not to engage in debauchery. He's not making a distinction, and let me be clear, he's not making a distinction between men and women. Everyone, men and women, are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. All of us are to be thankful. So when we get to this last verse here, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that applies to everyone. And that's going to be the starting point that we've got to, as we press forward again and looking at these verses that we did last week, 
We just want to keep that in mind because we said last week, this is kind of like the head verse that we're going to be under. Everyone is to submit to one another. And we started to try to get a little bit of what do you think that means last week. We heard from different people about what you thought. So tonight at the beginning, I'm going to give you a little bit more information and then hear from you again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think the first thing we want to do is figure out what this word submit means. Because one of the things that it's very tempting for us to do is to say, well, what does it mean? What could it mean? Because I'd like it to mean my own thing. I'd like it to mean maybe submitting to one another is like serving maybe. Or maybe submitting to one another might be something like having respect for one another. Or, or going out of our way for someone. Or maybe supporting someone. Coming under someone in a supportive way. Well, in this case, we kind of know that this word, the specific word submit, hupatasso, has a meaning that Paul has not only used elsewhere in Ephesians, but he also uses it elsewhere in his writings. So we can just look for a moment and get an idea of how submit works. Take a look at Romans 8-7, for example, which Paul also pens, and he says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. So you can think of a first idea of just submit being as if submitting to God's law. Or in 1 Peter 5, 5, which Paul did not write, another way that the New Testament uses this word is, in the same way you are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Notice, though, that as soon as we talk about submission, there's a verse that seems to go the other way and rub against it. All of you clothe yourselves in humility. All of you be humble, even in this act of younger people submitting to elders. But I think the most important place that we could look at how Paul would use this is in the same letter we're studying. In the very same letter we're studying, Paul uses the word this way. If you remember in Ephesians 1, and 23, we read these words. And God placed all things under his feet, being Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Look at this verse for a second. First of all, this part right here, and God placed all things under his feet. This Greek word literally means to arrange under or to place everything in order under. And he's saying here that God, you could almost replace this, that he is submitting everything under his feet. Same use by Paul. And the reason this verse is so interesting is because last week, and in a moment we're going to struggle again, we struggled with the word head, and Paul here uses the same word we're going to see again. So in one verse couplet here, verse 22 and 23, he gives us a picture of this type of submission and this type of headship in the same place. So you have a, the same word, and the other word we're going to look at in the same place. So I think this verse becomes very important because if we're trying to understand. Remember, we have two goals in, in reading a book like Ephesians right now. The first thing that we're barely going to get through is, what did Paul originally mean? What was his meaning? What was he trying to communicate? What was he saying? And then a totally separate issue we'll, we'll come back to is, and does that have anything to do with us? Does that apply to us in any way? Which we first have to understand what he means. We have a tendency to skip to the second one right away. Here's another thing that I think trips us up when we talk about submission. Our preferred ideal would be this one, equality. 
Paul's ideal is a standard of submission. And I would argue the New Testament ideal is one of submission. Where do I get that from? Well, before I show you a verse that kind of gives me some background for it, I just want you to identify, do you feel that way? Is one of the problems that we have when we talk about something like submitting to one another, is one of our problems the idea that we feel like, well, but I'd rather that we are all somehow equal to one another, that nobody was submitting to anybody. Isn't that somehow pulling against our ideas? And I would point out that the reason that equality sometimes is so troubling is equality means that each of us is going to look to our rights to somehow be equal. And that actually can create disunity. Whereas surrendering that and submitting to one another in a constant mutual submission, not just one person doing it, the other person taking advantage of that, but the idea of submitting to one another actually creates more unity than equality ever could. But we're not conditioned to hear that. We have to stop and say, you know, our ideal in our society is equality is among the highest and best values of the society. Yes? I would agree with that and even go as far as to say, like, equality for all may even be the opposite of submission because it puts the desires in, of the individual above the like what is needed for unity within the body. Because every person feels entitled to having their rights. It's like sort of the opposite of submission. Yeah, it's dangerous because as soon as I say this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like I'm, I'm saying something crazy, but equality does require us to look out for our rights or to have somebody else look out to your entitled rights. And even though I don't think that's necessarily bad in every context, in the context of unity that he's describing, it's not that equality is horrible, but submission is more unifying, is better. Yes. Yeah, I think going back to when we talked about unity a few chapters ago, a few weeks ago, um, when we talked about the different denominations and differences between churches, that equality is the same thing. Like, that's what causes it in that way. And if we had mutual submission, maybe there'd be, there'd be differences, but we wouldn't be like 8,000 denominations or whatever it is at this point. Okay, let me take it out of the abstract for a moment and show you what I mean from the book of Philippians, just about the concept of New Testament equality versus this idea of submission. Here, Paul is describing the role of Christ and his submission. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, or somebody could say your own rights, or your own entitlement, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." My main reason of bringing it up is that even in this sense that we want of equality, this verse clearly points to Christ who, in Paul's description, found equality not worth something that you should take advantage of or esteem, as some translations might even say, but rather to come and to serve and who voluntarily gives up that. And we would say, who more than Christ should be entitled to this position? Certainly not any of us. 
And that's the point, that if he was in equality with God and chose to surrender that, that's a model for us to consider why submission might be better than equality. Jesus himself said these two things. In Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That starts to sound like this mutual submission that we're going to be talking about. It kind of like almost rotates back and forth. Mark 9.35, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. Not servant of some, must put himself at the very end and be the servant of everyone. Again, that picture of submission. Anyone have a problem with the words submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? We okay with the concept? Yes. I'm not, not okay with it, but I, I don't think I quite see the link yet of like, I get the idea of submission, I get the idea of reverence or fear of Christ, but not maybe quite why one's fear of Christ would cause you to submit. So I'm sure that will get fleshed out, but that's the only thing that's still kind of sitting there for me. Yeah, and unfortunately it'll get fleshed out at the very end, so hang on to it for a moment. But I will note at this point that he's already told the church in chapter 4 that they should be unified in one another. Here he's describing a submission, but it still relates to Christ being the one that does it. And as I noted last week, one very interesting point is this is the only time in the New Testament that the word fear of Christ appears. Normally it's God that we fear, and yet there's a very important point that he's making about the supremacy of Christ, and it's very Christological that he would actually even bring it up here. It's the only time it appears, but he's clearly uh, going out of his way to make a point about, again, being in Christ. But we're going to have to come back at the very end of those verses because this kind of remains as almost like the head verse. Like, we're going to see that everything that comes after it, I'm going to leave it on the screen because it seems like the best way to understand it is this verse is the point. And now we're going to see some specific examples. But we should never lose sight of the fact that this verse is the point. All right? Yes? I don't have a problem with the first thing that it makes sense. Well, it makes sense, but I don't see how that how it would actually look. Um, because there's, at least with our idea of submission, everybody's submitting under each other, like, how that practically plays out, like, it's, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. Granted, nobody would, um, it's, the world wouldn't actually operate that way right now, because no, not everybody would want to do that. Um, but, so I'm not sure what that looks like. I had two pictures in mind, and I tried to create it graphically here, and I will describe it. Maybe by next week I could actually show it. One, I'll borrow from Dr. Sarah Sumner, who we're going to talk about her book a little bit later on. She describes a situation where, in general, if one comes under the other, and that person comes under the other, there's like this constant lifting of the whole body is elevated, right? Because each person, in turn, keeps doing this, and they're all submitting, right? The other picture that I had that was really interesting that I was trying to graphically do, I just couldn't get it on the screen, is the same picture of the way that infinity works where you come under and then the other person comes under that and it kind of and that's what he's trying to describe is something that builds up the whole body because remember he's talking this whole context is really in that earlier verse section about being filled with the spirit living a certain life that's wise doing these things and as part of it not like a new thought as part of that whole description of all the things the church should be doing he leads right into submit to one another And that's just part of all the things we're supposed to be doing. So it seems like he's prescribing it as a way to actually uplift everyone by each person doing that. Now, that's still graphical and not practical. Like, how do you do that today? Like, how do you and I do that? 
how do we do that on a daily basis? Uh, I've read a couple explanations. I'll leave them maybe for application later. I mean, none of them were so stunning that I thought, oh, this is like, this is it. You know, it opened the skies. Okay? Yes? I uh, think I used to have a big problem with the word submit until I was reading an interpretation, actually in that book by Sarah Sumner, when she talks about submit from the willing side. So like you willingly submit. And I think that willing, that word willing before the word submit is really key for me because like Christ was willing to submit to God the Father and die on the cross because he loved the Father that much. And so I think the way it kind of plays out practically for me is I want to be willing to listen to what the other person has to say and, it's, and then submit because I'm willing to submit to them, not because I feel forced. Like that was my problem before with the word submit was I thought I had to be forced to say okay to this other person. And that, I don't like the feel of that, I don't like it, it just rubs me wrong. That's a good point, and actually Jeremy brought up a very similar point last week. It's in the tense of the Greek. So it uses the middle sense of the word, like the hupatasso. That's why in the next verse you're going to see it's translated submit yourself, or it's like yourself submit. They've tried to incorporate that in there because it requires that. It, the, the, the grammatical construction requires an understanding. It's not just like a good way to think about it, like what you said is correct. It requires an understanding that it is a willing act on your part to do, and it cannot be initiated by someone else for them to make you do it. Like, you're thinking of subjugation, like when other people, like, force you to do that, right, against your will, and that's not the meaning here at all. And actually, it wouldn't make sense for Paul to even be advocating it, like, if in any other way, other than for you to self-give, to self-sacrifice, to, to love selflessly. That's what he's describing because he's trying to create a sense of unity, right? I mean, he's trying to describe unity in its best. So if someone had to get you to submit, then the unity is, is clearly not in, in view there, okay? All right, let's look at it this way. Now, example one that he moves into. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Let me actually read the whole thing before we come back to any other part of it. It is balanced in a little bit here. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's go back to this. 
Now he turns specifically to wives. Submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. We started to deal with this last week. I'll just remind you that verse 22, which we have right now highlighted on the screen, is linked to verse 21, which is the one right above it. In fact, in the Greek, it just says, wives to your own husband. So you actually have to borrow the submit, the verb. You have to borrow it from the previous verse. So it means we're going right into it. They're connected. So this is just one way if you want to say, is he starting off with a new example? Yes, but it relates to verse 21. It must. Otherwise, the verse would make no sense. It would have no verb. So he's giving it as a thought, like, submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Yes? I just, I mean, I like 21 because it is an idea of everyone submitting <laughs> to each other. So men are submitting to other men within the church and to women and whatever women to men. Like, I like that. But in the example of marriage, I can't help but notice that he does attribute to that relationship, submit from the wives to the husbands only. And it doesn't say, and in turn, husbands also submit to your wives to follow the example of how we're submitting to each other. He basically says, just take care of her. She's choosing to submit to you, so take care of her. I agree with everything you said, although I would quibble that take care of her is, is enough for what he's saying husbands to do. I think he's saying more, but you're right. He does not return the submission the other way around. Yes? I think when you look at 21, it's submit to one another, and the fear that pops up immediately is the finger blame point, where you sit there and go, well, I'll submit when he starts submitting to me, or I'll be a good Christian when you know, you're submitting to me. And it ties in with 22 when he starts talking about wives to your husbands as you do to the Lord. It's no longer about the other person. You're not, you're not submitting to someone when he serves you or when, um, when your spouse is doing his part. You're submitting them to them because that is what you're supposed to do, not because they're being nice. And in the, if you go on when it says, says he is the head of the wife, is Christ the head of the church, Christ died for the church out of submission because that's what he felt we didn't do anything to deserve. We actually spat in his face and we still spit in his face numerous times over and over and over again. But in that way, he still died for us and he's still saving us and he's still giving us the grace that we don't deserve. So it's not about them. It's not about what your husband, in a sense, is doing, or later on what your wife is doing to deserve it, because they don't. Okay, clearly it is a command to do it. It doesn't seem like there's a condition, so you're right. But I do want to remind that even though it's still a willing thing that you must do that he's asking, because it would have no meaning if it was forced. So we're still on a submit yourself that we still want to so I think the NIV and many translations insert submit yourselves. It's a proper translation and only because we wouldn't be able to, I mean, I guess we could understand it, wives to your own husband. Like it makes no sense in the English, but they've supplied the verb from the previous one. So it is important. Yes, there's no condition. And yes, though, it still needs to be something that you're doing as a loving act. So he's exhorting people to do that. Yes. I've heard the whole, you know, the way that people equalize it with the man has to die for the wife and that's harder than submitting because it requires giving up your lives and I just don't, my major problem with this is to me it causes the wife to look at the husband with some sort of supremacy 
over her. I can't help but see that because even in the passage where it's talking about what the man is supposed to do to his wife, it's make her clean, make her blameless. Like you have to clean her because she's dirty, and like there's this whole like. Let's let's wait till we get to that part because I think we have to look at who's doing what to whom in that passage, Abby. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the whole cultural context of this, like we're not talking about like two people that fell in love that got married. Like it's much different of a system where the wife might not even love her husband in any way, shape, or form. And potentially, I find some issue with it, like in a sense, kind of like with Rachel, like with what she says, that like he's clearly like addressing the wives first because he knows that they weren't the one that maybe chose to be in this and they weren't the ones that maybe like are in love with the husband. So, kind of like along the same lines, um, like what does this look like culturally? Okay, let me address that briefly and then I'll go to your point. There is evidence from a lot of literature that doing what's called the house codes that we started to talk about last week, which is addressing wives, children, and slaves, was a common three-part way to address household management. I don't know about love in terms of the marriage. I, I would suspect that you might be right, that maybe there wasn't a lot of like, we fell in love and we got married like we would look at in today's society. But you have to remember that from Paul's perspective, Love should exist in the body of Christ, not just between husband and wife. I mean, just a, an all-encompassing, unifying love. All right, That goes beyond maybe just the love of a wife for a husband the way we would normally think of it or the other way around. In fact, he's going to talk about love in a lot of ways in a moment. Okay? The interesting thing, though, to remember, and I'll bring it up from last week's discussion, is, Paul is Paul's version of the house codes is kind of shocking to his own audience because he's addressing husband's parents, and masters, as well as who is usually addressed. And the fact that he even brings up the other half and creates duties on both sides is, to his audience, totally foreign. Like, we understand where the roles of certain people are in the management pecking order, but he comes up with what most people would look at and say is almost like, a, a, you know, he's giving them both duties, and I could argue that they're almost equal duties, right? That by itself is strange and shocking. So we have to remember that because even his own audience is probably thinking that's a little strange. Brittany. Well, like, at least just the highlighted part right now, like, I don't really have any problem with because it's just saying the same thing over again. It would seem with all this talk of unity and in the body of Christ, like, the primary thing is that we are brother and sister to each other in Christ, that we are neighbor to each other in Christ, and not that we're husband and wife. And so primarily, we are that to each other, which is submitting to everybody, submitting to everyone in Christ. Okay, my observation would be that for some reason, Paul cares very deeply about the husband and wife relationship. And we're going to see in a moment, this is the longest of his passages, and he goes out of his way to cite Genesis about the man and the woman, and we're going to come to that. So. He's actually using marriage, and he doesn't do this with the other codes that we have about parents and children or masters and slaves. He specifically uses marriage to insert a very mature theology of how Christ relates to the church. So for him, in some way, marriage is a little different than every other relationship among believers. And this is, by the way, among believers. So for, there is that, and I think we have to kind of get to it in a moment. Yes? With this part, like, as you do to the Lord... I just think it's a weird, a little bit strange to throw in there, especially with the whole idea of like you should be hating your family compared to like how you love Jesus. Like, I, 
And yeah, so I'm not really sure why that's in there, like submitting, even like any, even the first part doesn't submit to each other as you submit to Christ in the same way. Like The as you do to the Lord we covered last week and what it basically means is not that your husband is a Lord. First of all, that is clearly not in, in view here. But it's either as part of your submission to the Lord is really what's going on. As part of your submission to the Lord or because you are part of the Lord, either one is acceptable. But let's just be clear that it doesn't mean because your husband is the Lord. Uh, that would actually require a different grammatical statement. There need to be some additional words for us to understand it that way. I think that's kind of important to get. Um, so well, I'll leave that there. We had some difficulty with this. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is a savior. And I, I don't want to backtrack too much, but just to be clear again, the of which he is the savior uh, doesn't make the, the husband the savior of the wife. That's actually grammatically constructed to refer only to Christ and his being the savior of the body. But we came up with this last week, if you remember. We're trying to understand what head means. It was almost like an algebraic formula, like the husband is the ex of the wife, as Christ is the ex of the church. So we're trying to solve for X here in a way. Like we're trying to figure out what is this word head all about? And this is something else. So we've got submit. We're working on submit. Now we've got to work on head a little bit. And then it's going to be a free-for-all. <laughs> Let's look at the word head. The word head in this case is kefale. All right? What does that mean? Let me give you some observations about the use of that word. First of all, Paul could have used another word in Greek, which is archon. And here's what's interesting about that. If you look at the Septuagint, when the, when the Old Testament was in the Greek translation, every time they tried to translate the Hebrew word rosh into some Greek word, they usually used archon when they meant like boss, leader, prince, ruler, any type of authoritative figure. So Paul clearly is aware that most times you're trying to use a word that might mean leader or boss, you would use archon. You could look at it and say he clearly steered away from a word that meant that the husband is the boss of the wife. However, we know that Paul used kephale in Ephesians 1, 22 and, 1, and 23. We looked at it already. And there, the use of that same word clearly implies some sort of authority because it says that Christ is the head of the church. And we're going to see more head language right here. So, to plant two posts, the answer is somewhere in between those. He could have just said, husband's the boss, but he steered away from it. At the same time, we know that in the same letter, he's used the same word to imply some relationship as Christ has to the church, and we see it here again, so we can't just escape it completely. That's the observations. Now I'm going to give you a couple of views, and then see what you think. View number one. Paul's use implies leadership of an authority over. That's what we would say is the complementarian view. That Paul used a verb already in Ephesians 1.22 and 1.23, so we know what he means. He means the same thing. Just as Christ has authority over the church, the man has authority over the wife. That's the end of it. That's the first view. That's what's being stated. That's view number one. We would call that a complementarian view. I think it has some issues, though. If I could point out a couple things real briefly. 
He went out of his way to use a different word. I think we can't get around that. And the metaphor he's setting up is just a little bit more complicated than that. He has this very complicated analysis of Christ's relationship with the church, and that just seems like it's something we have to look at and think about. We can't just immediately conclude it. Here's the people on the other side of the, the spectrum, the egalitarian view. Their view is that Paul's use of one word and not the other means that he intended its other common meaning. That the husband is the source of the wife, as Christ is the source of the church. And this is a common view that's expressed by egalitarians who believe that really the word head should be translated as source. You guys are laughing like I made a theological joke or something. Like I don't. Just, I mean, just to explain the source idea would be like kind of from Adam, from Eve, just the fact that God created them. Yeah, I mean, there would be that kind of idea. And here's where, here's where it starts to get into trouble. Another verse on submission where you could do this, and this is an example in 1 Corinthians 11.3, also Paul's writing, says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In every case there, the word head is kephale, again. So, one of the problems that comes up is if you change the word head to source, it gets a little strange. But I want you to realize that the source of every man is Christ. You could say that if Christ created all things. But he would be the source of every woman, too, wouldn't he? That would be kind of strange. And here we're not talking about man like both, because they're separating men and women. So that's a little strange. And the source of the woman is man. I mean, if anything, it might be the other way around. Like, it'd be hard, <laughs> it'd be hard to be born without a woman. <laughs> but if you're talking about, as you said, in an Adam and Eve kind of way, like, the, like that might apply. And then the source of Christ is God, which could create some problems for your Trinitarian theology, which is way too complicated to go into here, but some people just object to it on that basis, that the only begotten of God may not really be sourced from God the Father. I mean, if we really believe they are one and equal from the beginning and that Christ always existed, it would be strange to have him, one, be the source of the other. That by itself is a little bit strange. Okay. So you could pick boss or leader, to say it nicely, or we like to say he's the spiritual leader, right? The spiritual leader. <laughs> That's option one. Option two is on the other side, that he's the source. That's the egalitarian view. Yes, you want to stop? Let's go ahead. What do you think when you're speaking about, like, the Trinity also to say that the head of Christ is God. I mean, isn't that a weird statement in the Trinity as well? Yes and no. If you say that the head of Christ is the Father, it's actually got more support than what we might think. And here's where I'm going to make a plug for Sarah's book. It's Men and Women in the Church, written by Dr. Sarah Sumner. There are four chapters in this book just on the word head and how it relates not only to Trinitarian theology, but just the whole metaphor. And I'm going to tell you that there's no way tonight I'm going to be able to do it justice. I'm going to give you a small sampling of some observations she makes, 
But I would highly recommend if you want to understand the head passages to read this book. Actually, it covers women in ministry and the role of women in the church really well. And probably the best plug for this book recently came, I was telling Michelle this the other day, you guys know the author Max Lucado, right? Clearly not the, on the woo liberal side of the, of the aisle. As Michelle described him, if there was a Bible belt, he would be the buckle, right? <laughs> Even Max Lucado recently tweeted out to his 170,000 followers on Twitter that he had just finished reading this book and thought it was absolutely magnificent and everybody should read it. So people from all ends of the spectrum um, should probably look at this book because I think it's one of the most honest, fair, and insightful. It's fresh. It comes up with some things that are different. We're going to look at a couple of them in a minute. By the way, one other argument against the use of source is uh, Jeremy's favorite uh, theologian, Wayne Grudem, um, has done a survey of all of the passages in Scripture and all the passages that are outside of Scripture that we can find, like, like literary sources in Greek, to find out how often was this word kephale used as source. And he's concluded that like 2% of the time was it ever used in that way out of almost, I think, 2,300 instances that he was able to find in Greek literature. So... Most commentators don't buy the source argument. It just seems to be convenient from an egalitarian perspective to say, well, that sounds a lot better than just saying boss or leader or ruler or any of those other uses. And again, kefale is very infrequently used in that way. The other word is much more preferred in Greek, archon, if you're trying to say leader or ruler. All right, let's look at Dr. Sumner's perspective on this, just as one more and then we'll hear from you. She does make these observations. Number one, husbands are not commanded anywhere in Scripture to submit to their wives. That was Monique's point. There does seem to be a special case here. Second, however, nowhere in Scripture is the husband told to lead his wife. You can't find that anywhere in any marital text that any word that actually pushes leadership in this way. So that our concept of spiritual leader is just a word that we seem to be using as shorthand that actually confuses the position. Another thing that she points out is you might have heard that the husband is the head of the house. Well, that's not what the scripture says. It says he's the head of the wife, and that's not the same thing as being the head of the house. So we, in our mind, like head of household, we ascribe leadership position and leadership wording when even the scripture itself doesn't actually describe it. It's talking about a relationship between the husband and the wife, and not the husband and the house. It doesn't say he's the head of the children. It doesn't say he's the spiritual leader. That's our language. Those are her observations. My only demur to this point would be that point there on the screen kind of skirts by Ephesians 1, and 23 in my mind. I mean, there, it does seem to be that there's this relationship being established of how this word is to be used, but we'll leave that there. Here's what she notes about the text that we just read. There are three couplets in the text, three ways that you see it. The wife is to submit, the husband is to sacrifice. That's Ephesians 5, 22 and 24. Another couplet, the wife is the body and the husband is the head. Ephesians 5, 23, 28 and 31. The third couplet is, the wife is to respect her husband and he is to love. That's Ephesians 5, 25, 28, and 33. Her method of working out this whole section is to take those couplets 
and arrange them in a way and say what matches what. Submit and sacrifice work together. Body and head work together. Respect and love work together. So she gives this little quiz in the book for us to kind of match together which words go together. On the one hand, you have body, submit, and respect. That's on the wife's side. And then you have on the husband's side, sacrifice, love, and head. Her view is that most of us connect these two together. That submission is connected to the headship. And her view is that because of that theology, we ascribe that the whole idea is that you're to submit because he's the head. Her view is it should rather be this way. That you connect body and head and the other two words you connect this way, you submit to sacrifice, respect to love, and that is the proper way to understand the verse. Now you might be looking at all that and go, that's pretty neat how those little red lines go, but what does it mean? Wanna <laughs> <laughs> see that again? No. In the end, what she's basically saying, it's a metaphor. The picture that Paul is trying to give is of the husband and the wife as a one flesh unified body. A body and a head unified together as he will go on to describe in the next few verses. All right, now I've said a lot, so let me stop and capture your comments, yes. I like to say this is, this is very nice, and I like the way this looks, because it, it makes it seem like, oh, everybody else has just not thought of it this way before. This just makes everything so much clearer. But I think the reason why submit is always connected to head is because if you're looking at the actual text, Wife submits to your husbands because the husband is the head of the wife. It comes right after. It's the word right. It's like it's the verse right after it. So I can't help but say like it's nice to kind of scramble everything up to see where it matches. But I don't know that I can believe that that was the original intent of the author because head comes right after submit. So to me, those are connected in that way. And her response would be that it's not the chronology of the verse we have to look at. We have to look at the different duties of. There's three duties given to wives, there's three duties given to husbands, and everything's got to match up somehow. That's her view. So you might say, wow, that's like the Bible coloring book. You know, <laughs> like you've got a little, like a Sudoku Bible, like where you're like doing all this stuff, right? Like that may be too simplistic. Uh, at the same time, it may be totally a third way that up until this, actually nobody had actually come up with. So it could either be some days people will be writing in commentaries like, you know, in a footnote, like that discarded theory of, you know, the Sudoku Bible idea study. Or it could be that it actually opens the dialogue to say, why do we look at it only in that way? So, again, I can't do it justice because she goes into a long explanation of the implication of this, and I just invite you to actually read it. You know, I might read a piece of it if we have time, just to say, so what does it mean? Do you have a comment? Yeah, so when it's like relating it to submission to like Christ, the church to Christ, is like you would submit to Christ, is that alluding to unity with Christ as opposed to obedience? Because like I can understand from reading that verse how people would infer all the stereotypes we have. So when it's talking about as to Christ, is that like unity to Christ? He's actually describing this relationship, which we're going to come to, about being unified in Christ, like being literally part of Christ. And so that same unity with Christ is seen in the unity of marriage, of the husband and wife becoming this one flesh union. 
he's actually describing our relationship as the whole body with Christ as the head in the same way. Well, and also, like, it describes the relationship of church, the church to Christ often, like, as a marriage and a bride and a groom. So I think that's interesting because it's kind of like a microcosm of that relationship, kind of. And I don't know. Maybe he deals with the submission ahead of time because when we read about, like, the humility of Christ in Philippians 2, submitting to like one another and Christ's humility how he submitted to death so maybe since we are just submitting to each other like it's sort of taken care of before this idea okay yes now I'll press forward this feels like it potentially ignores the other parts of the passage that talk about more like even what Nick was saying that the husband is compared to Christ. So we talked about this last week, I know, where the wife is compared to the church in both cases of where it's talking about husbands and wives. Um, and even if there's still like a unity and like Christ to church is one thing, like there's still an idea of like Christ is the head. Even if he submits himself underneath it, he's still the head. He's still he's more important than we are, like and <laughs> like he's better than we are. And he chooses to submit himself underneath. But still inherently he's better. Um, and I just feel like that creates a very weird, I don't know how to deal with that, when like the husband is twice in both situations analogous to Christ. And, that, like, and, and I feel like with this situation, that, like this, it feels like that this ignores that. Philip, you're absolutely right. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Even if we just stopped right there, we're going to have to understand how that works, right? And that's where I would say, in this book, she at least takes a very valiant attempt at spending four chapters explaining headship. And that's more than I would say any of the many commentaries I've looked at have, have dealt with it. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on with very many creative examples. One of the things that's clear, these passages have been abused in a lot of ways, right? Uh, we've used shorthand to describe them. It's led us into trouble. We've used... Um, these passages to make it as if the man has the final say in everything. In fact, I, I think maybe just better than to hear from me, let me just read you what Sarah says about this. I think it's very interesting. Uh, she goes on to talk about how this word submit is used in the middle voice, and it's something that one must do voluntarily. But she says, the irony is that within the Christian community, it is wives who are told to sacrifice themselves for their husbands. So she points out an irony even in the way we speak to one another. Not the husband, but the wife is repeatedly told to give up her agenda and adjust her life to his. Rarely is the husband challenged by the church to sacrifice himself as a normal way of showing love for her. Instead, he is told to prepare himself to die for his wife if ever her life is endangered. In other words, the commandment for him to sacrifice himself mistakenly is seen as applying only to a crisis situation. And it's strange because I think that really hits a point that we're at right now, which is it's very easy to tune out and say, you know, it's been very hard to deal with these passages throughout the history of the church. No wonder so many shorthand ways of expressing it has, have emerged. Because what you're hitting on is the difficulty in understanding how this is not only to be understood, but then to be done practically. So it's easier to just designate someone as a spiritual leader and just make them go, that's what it means, right? Or it's easier just to come up with some idea of like, well, this is just bound by some patriarchal society, as if ours is so equal, <laughs> um, in the past, right? I still want to struggle with it, but we're going to see it lay side by side with the other verses probably next week. So we're not done. Let's go back to this for a moment. 
But here's one thing I look at in this verse. Right after we're done, even if we don't understand how the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the church, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. One of the ironies that she points out is the word how we drop in everything. When we talk about spousal submission, it's only in big decisions. Well, it's more troubling, I'm sure, to people in this room when you add the words in everything. Because that would make it impossible to meet this out. Like, you'd, in everything? Like, I'd have no opinion. I would just, you know, like, whatever you want me to do? No, that's actually probably why that submit to one another remains part of the command in some way. There must be something more in view here of the husband's sacrifice. It must be more than just, as she says, getting ready to die for her if that ever comes up. Right? Yeah, 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 don't worry about it. I mean, if ever we're confronted by a bunch of robbers, like, that's my duty, everything else is submission. I, that's not the verse is. Let's dive into it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He jumps into, in the middle of this discussion, this beautiful description of Christ loving the church. Sure, it's part of the analogy he's creating, but he is actually describing what some people think is maybe taking a passage that references back to Ezekiel about this beautiful, intimate picture of the way that Christ loves the church. There's nothing in this that you could say, well, Christ... He's to be glorified, he's to be praised, he's to be worshipped. I mean, you could make him to, yes, he's God, he's a ruler, he's a prince, he's everything you want him to be, yet here the picture is of him tenderly, very carefully working with the church. It's not just the picture of Christ the Savior and us the saved. It's not just like Christ the Redeemer and us the redeemed or the captives following him around that even Paul uses earlier. This is a picture of Christ loving the church in this very tender description of how he presents her even to himself. So they're saying, like, husbands, love your wives with this level of love and tenderness. Yes? So when I look at the, the cleansing of her by, by washing with water and that, like, the idea of maybe washing and cleaning as, like, serving or the washing of the feet, that's kind of cool, but I find it kind of condescending if we're looking at it like, my husband is what, and I'm not saying this is what it says, but a lot of people present it this way. The husband is what, like, lays the, the wife down at the feet of Christ as this pure, like, going through the man to be this pure and wonderful thing. And he's the one that's going to make me blameless, like, before God and our relationship, the way he, I don't know, whatever, the dynamic between it. So I just find it kind of condescending in that way. So please expand. The good news is that's not what it's saying about husbands and wives. The key here is that they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church, meaning like to the level that he loved her, not that husbands, you're supposed to pull out the wash rag and every night, like, you know, start doing this thing, right? Now, it's some, you're clearly not married, but my wife would take that any day. I mean, she'd be totally fine with that if I came home and said, but the Bible says, and I'm, you know, she'd totally be okay with that, right? But you can't also throw out the analogy completely. And so, so is the washing like a, a, a humbling thing or just protecting? It's the love. 
focus on the love. That's really what he's trying to do. Now, I will tell you that even the, the most brilliant commentator I read that I can barely follow his language says it's unfortunate that Paul decides to wrap his theology in the midst of this discussion. It'd be so much easier if he's like, boom, boom, boom. Oh yeah, and by the way, about Christ and the church, boom, 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 right? The fact that these keep in the balance leads us, especially in our language, to read them as if he's saying, love your wives and then do this, right? But what he's saying is, love your wives to the degree that Christ loved the church just like in the previous passage when it says that Christ is the savior of the body, it's not meant to be read grammatically that the husband is the savior of his wife. There's a clear break in the way that the words refer to one another where they go, nobody believes that they're trying to set up the husband as the savior. All right? Or the husband is the Lord. Like those are not grammatically possible in the construction. Here it's a little bit less easy to just draw that line, but I don't think that he's going to say, so the way I love my wife is to, I mean, could we do that? That's not even in our power. No, it's not even within our power, but it does describe what Christ does and a very tender description of it. Jason? Um, it might be a tangent, but I don't quite understand the washing with water through the word. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> You're not alone. More than one person that I've looked at to try to get a very good description of that says not easy to understand. They'll eliminate, it's not about baptism. It is maybe more about the cleansing that comes with the word of God, which is described in many cases as cleansing. Or it might refer to the Holy Spirit, who is also described in many places as cleansing. Right. So that's kind of the, the connotation of the words. But they are an, an awkward phrase that people acknowledge, like even in the language itself, it's a little bit awkward. But this language, again, might be even an illusion, which I didn't bring in the Ezekiel passage. We've got enough stuff to look at, but that might be the thing, and I can show you that passage if it adds clarity to it. But most people feel that, that the washing with water through the word is the act of cleansing probably through the spirit. And that's not immediately, like you can't look at that and go, oh, yeah, I see that totally. You know, I mean, that's something that people look into and say that's probably the closest of what he was trying to say. Yes? But I mean, theologically, transparently, like, the word of God is Christ, and Christ alone. Like, so I don't think that that would make any sense to be the Spirit, because the word of God is Christ, and it wouldn't make sense, like, the Bible, like, because that's not used there. But, so I, I don't understand, yeah, like, what is the word in this sentence? And that's the reason the translations don't capitalize it? Right? First of all, because they're not trying to imply that it is the word, the logos being Christ. But even the spirit is described as the spirit of Christ. Again, could create other Trinitarian problems. But, but even there, it's described in different places as the spirit of Christ. Right? As a description of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to stand on that and like plant it. I'll say that most people look at it and say, here's the best we can surmise as, he's, as to what he's doing. Monique? I think one thing, too, that maybe contributes to reading this wrong or at least for me there's other places like in the bible where it talks about justification through marriage like if you're married to an unbeliever and you become a believer like you're not supposed to get divorced because your husband is somehow justified through you if you're believing in christ not that he's a christian or whatever but like it's somehow justified so when you see that idea before and then you see this like cleansing and almost like the same idea where it's kind of easy to misread it as like oh so i'm somehow justified through my marriage to my husband who's above me, the way that Christ also justifies us or whatever, so I don't know. 
very good point on two things I'd like to bring up. First of all, Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Greek nor Jew, right? And one of them is there's neither male nor female, which is an incredibly egalitarian statement. And so that's important to put somewhere. I mean, again, Paul wrote that so we can kind of compare the language. Uh, the other point that you just made in 1 Corinthians 7, um, Paul actually says to wives, like, if your husband wants to leave you because you've become a Christian, you can let that happen if you want to. That is an incredibly shocking statement because wives were expected to just take the religion of their husband. So the fact that Paul puts allegiance to Christ among their duties or their normative values in the society is again something that's shocking. And that brings up a point we made last week, which is some people believe that in part what he's doing here is trying to address the amount of freedom given to women in the church because it was so different than the rest of the society that people were starting to malign the church and say, this is crazy. You're giving so much freedom and so much equality that everything's going to go to hell in this society because it's going to come glued at the seams, which is still an argument we hear all the time now, right? All the time. And he, as we said, I think it was in Titus 2.5 last week, he said that they should submit so that others cannot malign the body of Christ. So there is some hint somewhere in it that actually we have to consider those verses against this when we get to that part. And we have to still think that maybe there was a purpose for why he was saying this. And that would give us some pauses to how it applies to us. Because if there was a purpose that no longer exists, that's a clue. Or at least you can consider that in your weight. Let me just look at one more thing down here. This is the most important part, at least in most of the formulations. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. There's the appeal to unity again. And this isn't just, in case a bear comes along, you'll jump in her way. I mean, this is an idea of love and the other thing that's really interesting here, I think Chill and I were talking about this last week. He's not talking about like some sort of eros love here. He's not talking about some context of husband and wife type love. He's using love in another kind of crazy way, which is love in an agape love kind of way. Back to that sisters and brothers concept, but he's saying like, you've got to love your wife, not just because you have feelings for her, not just because she's your wife out of obligation, but have that kind of love that Christ shows. That's where the connection of love keeps coming back, that, that self-giving, self-sacrificing love, even for someone that you might have feelings for, or as somebody pointed out, maybe not. But it doesn't matter, you still have that love. And he quotes back to Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Sarah thinks that's a key to many of the things in this verse that he's really describing the head and the body together as one flesh that you can't just ignore that. Otherwise, why would he drop that into the middle of this passage? This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. This unity of us with Christ, with Christ as the head and us as the body of us, as he just finished saying, being united in Christ. This is a mystery. How is this even possible that we can do that? But just to make sure, the however in this verse almost sounds like he's saying, okay, okay, but I digress. Like, let's get back to the point because I've thrown in so much theology and I've probably confused you and you think, you think? <laughs> he does sum up 
And again, I think the key for us is in these sum up passages because he said it twice and now he says it again. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Still in one piece? It either means you're taking the C or it somehow is okay. The harder part is going to be how we apply this. And the reason I'm going to leave that until the next discussion is because I think it's important that we look at the other two codes. The ones about parents and children and masters and slaves because if they're meant to be three different examples that all fall under this submit to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ, then I think it's fair that we take them all together and then say, do the addition of these two codes give us any understanding on how we might look at the application altogether? You know, in the, in the book of Acts, we see Paul preaching to a group of people, and a guy got so bored, he fell out of the window. You guys know that story? <laughs> I think he was preaching about this. <laughs> I mean, I just think the picture of that is so funny that somebody's got to reenact it someday, you know? <laughs> like, I, Paul is described also, I think, in 2 Corinthians, as not very good looking, so I was like, you know, and he's not a very good preacher, and a guy fell out of the window. So <laughs> maybe you could add to the list that, you know, you, you were trying to do too much in this passage. Uh, you know, we, you, you had me at submit to one another, and then you just blew it by going forward. Everything after that just got really complicated. Maybe that's the resolution. So these quotation marks and these hyphens and periods and paragraph segmenting. Right. There are construction. But in fairness, people who can look at the Greek can grammatically determine what's connected to what, right? Just not me. All right. Just not me. Everybody else, but just not me. Yes, last comment, then we're going to. Would women have been listening to this letter being read? Would they have been there? Or is it just men in the church? Oh, no, that's actually one of the other controversial things that Paul would have been criticized for, is imagine these Christians were allowing men and women to meet together in the same, in the same place, in the same place of worship. So presumably the letter was read. Uh, otherwise, he, who's he addressing? He's just addressing a bunch of men who are like, hmm, let's just, you know, like. <laughs> you got a letter from Paul that says, wives submit. Like, that's the end. We lost everything else in translation. You know? Okay, but again, it was scandalous. Because at this time, we may not remember this, but men and women were not supposed to be together. They're not supposed to meet in the same room. If they were unmarried, they're not supposed to be around each other. We think of the Roman Empire as like a big bath orgy, but like, that's not the case in most of the conquered empires, especially not in Asia Minor. The more respectable you were in the family, even in your own household, you slept in different parts of the house than the males. Right? So for him to have church meetings in homes where men and women ate together and had communion together and shared the love feast together, that was another place where people would say, scandalous. I get, get that, but like that, even that argument is like, oh, yay, Paul, you were so progressive, but you write these things that make me feel like crap, and so I don't know that I still think that you like women or respect them at all. You can tell him when you get there. <laughs> yeah, let's not diminish what he's saying to husbands. I mean, how did Christ love the church? He gave up every privilege he had. He suffered. He basically gave up everything and died for the church died for every one of us. I don't think it's a small thing to include that. Uh, it's a big thing, and we kind of make it, like I said, maybe because we read it as only in life-threatening situations. Like, this is as close to submission, 
without actually using the word, and it probably doesn't go as far as submission. Let's be, let's be honest with one another. It doesn't go as far as saying husband submit, but it's in giving everything, including your own life, and loving her more than you love yourself, or in the same way you love your own body. It's a lot. But I want to leave it there and just close in prayer. No, go ahead. No. I appreciate the, the, the picture of like what the husband's responsibilities is really. I think I think it's a good thing, but it's also like saying that the whole thing is a, like seems like a nice, good picture. Like I feel like it's easier to say that from the guy's perspective. Like because it does feel like yeah, the stuff that the guy's called to do like is a good thing, but it's also like what the girl's called to do feels a sense of inequality. Like. I agree, and if you ask me, I actually think we can't get away from that. There's just no way to get around it. I actually think that based on Ephesians 1, 22, and 23, he is implying that the husband has... One commentator said maybe it's not authority, but it's responsibility for. Maybe it's not authority over, but it's responsibility for. And, and if you go into Sarah's book, she'll talk about how her belief is that because men are physically stronger, they have so many more responsibilities to their wives and all these other things... I'll leave it for her because it's too much. But I, if you look at 122 and 23, you can't get around the fact that there isn't some sense of that in this passage, especially because we don't see a mutual submission on behalf of wives. Submit. No, go ahead. <laughs> okay, sorry. Just one more thing. Um, I wonder if sometimes with this passage... The reason why, like, as women, we get so frustrated is because um, we think that Paul is saying that men and women are not equal. Like, but I think that we are equal, but I think we have different roles. And I just think that that's an important distinction. The different roles that men and women are to play, just like Christ played a role and God the Father played a role, there's a different role there. It doesn't mean that they're not equal, just a different role. But I think the reason why in this passage that it seems like the wife is, um, as Phil was saying, is kind of gets the shaft is because of our culture. The way that it's interpreted and used in our culture is definitely misused. Well, your point about Christ is a very good one. And we see that kind of relationship. And yet they are equal if we believe in a Trinitarian view. But again, we keep struggling with equality, and that's why I'm going to leave it there till next week. Let me just close off. Some other people want to go back to singing and doing something other than just debating this. Let's pray uh, and specifically ask God's guidance over this verse. Lord, I want to admit with humility that for us to try to take apart a passage that people have really debated for long periods of time and split over and argued over and and even sometimes in, in disunity, in bitterness and anger and frustration, uh, torn each other apart over, for us to try to address it in one night and come to a place, I admit in humility, Lord, that's, that's more than I can even imagine. But I'm thankful, Lord, for the way that you worked in us tonight. I'm thankful for the ways that you moved us through this. Uh, I'm confident, Lord, that even in things we didn't quite hear out loud right now, that your work was already being done. And Lord, I pray that you would continue that work in us now. I pray specifically, Spirit, that you would work in us to help us to have a better understanding, that you would illuminate this very text for us, and maybe we would see things that we hadn't seen before. Amen.